Let me invite you to join me once again this morning in our studies of Paul's first letter to the young pastor at Ephesus, Timothy. So the book of 1 Timothy, and we'll read from chapter 3 and verses 14 through 16. We covered verses 8 through 13 on Wednesday night, so we come today to verses 14 through 16. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for how it speaks to us of Christ and of the bride of Christ. Help us be the bride that you would have us be. Be the household the children of you, the Heavenly Father, that we ought to be. Be the church that we ought to be so that our bridegroom would be seen as glorious in the world around us. We ask in His name. Amen. Now I'm going to make some of you a a, a little bit uncomfortable uh, this morning by asking you to go back with me to your years in middle school. And a few of you will be even more nervous when I tell you that I want to take you back to your English class, where Mrs. So-and-so would make you read through various paragraphs about Johnny taking his dog to the veterinarian, or Susan going to visit her out-of-state grandmother, and then Mrs. So-and-so would call on you and ask you to stand up in front of the class and identify the topic sentence. Do you remember the topic sentence? Your English teacher was right to make you learn that concept, even if you didn't realize it at the time. Because it's helpful to be able to read a paragraph, or sometimes a longer piece of writing like a news article or a vignette or a letter, and to identify the one sentence in which the author really lays his cards on the table. The one sentence which summarizes the totality of what he or she is trying to say. The whole document makes much more sense when you can locate the topic sentence or sentences or in a longer piece of writing if you can locate the thesis statement. And often that key sentence will be at or near the very beginning of the paragraph or the writing. So for instance, if you're reading a little vignette, the opening sentence of which reads, Susie always seemed to get sick when she went to her grandmother's house. Well, you can pretty well guess that the rest of the story is going to be about how Susan went to her grandmother's house in Nebraska and how Susan came down with the flu while she was there. Because you've recognized right off the top the topic sentence. But then there are other times when the topic sentence is buried a little deeper within the document and you have to work to find it, but it's still quite important to hunt it up because even if it takes you a while to get there, that one sentence can be the linchpin that shows you how everything else that you're reading holds together. And such is the case this morning when we turn to Paul's letter to his young apprentice Timothy. We've gotten through almost three chapters so far 
all of which it turns out have been revolving around one primary theme, but Paul doesn't state it in a topic sentence until here in chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. Here, he finally gives us the summary statement of what he's really on about in all six of these chapters. And once we've located this sentence, it will be much more difficult for us to forget or misunderstand why it is that Paul wrote this letter. You may read Timothy and already notice what the overall theme is, but once you find it here stated succinctly, you'll remember it even more clearly. So let me read to you the whole sentence and then really zoom in on the core idea that's in the middle of it. Verses 14 and 15. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. There's Paul's topic sentence, if you will, and we can boil it down even further to this most basic core. I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church. That's what this letter is all about. I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church. That's the main idea, really, of the entire letter. Paul, you may remember, has planted this church in Ephesus, And he has moved on now to another field of labor, leaving Timothy behind as the pastor. And now he writes him a letter with all sorts of information about what church life ought to look like so that Timothy will know how to organize this local congregation. And so he tells Timothy in the first half of the sentence, in verse 14 there, he tells him why he's writing because he's not sure when he'll be able to visit in person. And then he also tells him much more importantly why he's writing what he's writing. Why am I writing these things to you, Timothy, about warding off false teachers in chapter 1? Why am I writing to you concerning prayer meetings and the role of women in chapter 2? Why am I writing to you about the qualification for elders and deacons in chapter 3? Why am I about to write to you further about false teaching in chapter 4 and about your own life and preaching in that same chapter? Why am I about to pen some words to you about the care of widows and the compensation of pastors in chapter 5? Because, Paul says, I'm concerned that you should know what a church ought to look like, Timothy. I'm concerned that you should know how its members ought to conduct themselves and what ought to be taught them and so on. I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church. That's what Paul is on about in this letter. The book of 1 Timothy is a kind of handbook on the life of the local church. Now, that's not to say that Paul speaks of nothing else in this letter. He does, for instance, have that wonderful sidebar in chapter 1 in which he revels over the marvel of his own salvation. Jesus saved even me, the foremost of sinners, And as another, for instance, he gives Timothy a bit of advice on his health over in chapter 5. This is a personal letter after all. But the main track down which this train of 1 Timothy runs is that of church order. Not to say that 1 Timothy is an exhaustive book on that subject. Paul doesn't say everything that needs to be said about the life and doctrine and order of the local church. But what he does say is largely along those lines. And it's so practically helpful if we will take it seriously. And of course, that's what I hope we have been doing in these recent weeks and will continue to do so in the weeks that are ahead. 
Paul has written an entire letter dedicated primarily to help his friend understand what a local church ought to look like. And the question is, why? Why is Paul so concerned about the purity and the health and the care of the church? Well, we looked at one reason last week from the words of the apostle spoken to the elders of this same Ephesian church over in Acts chapter 20. He wanted these men to diligently shepherd the church of God, to diligently lead and feed and protect God's flock because the church, he said, was purchased with the very lifeblood of Jesus. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. So there's one reason why the health of the church is so important to Paul because of the inestimable purchase price of that church. And I hope you feel the weight of that. It is important that the church be all she can be. It is important that we take seriously the teachings of this letter. It is important that the elders should be whom they should be and that our deacons should be whom they should be and that our doctrine should be what it should be and that our women should be whom they should be and that our men should be men of prayer and that our elderly should be cared for all because this little church exists at the cost of the blood of the Son of God. And we mustn't treat lightly that which has been bought so dearly. So that's one reason why Paul is so concerned about the health of the church. But then in verse 15, and tagged on to his topic sentence, Paul hints at three other reasons why he wants Timothy to understand how one ought to conduct himself in the church. And the first is that the church is the household of God. The household of God. Now, that's family language, isn't it? It's not just that we are God's subjects or that we are God's servants or that we are God's pupils or that we are God's friends. All of those things are true, of course. But they don't tell the whole story of how God relates to his people because not only are we all of those things, but we are also his household, his family, his children. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are, says the Apostle John. And doesn't a father care deeply about whether his children are being taught correctly? Chapter 1. And isn't he greatly concerned about the character of those in whose care he places them? Chapter 3. And doesn't a father want his children to be fed well? as Paul urges Timothy to do for the church in Ephesus in chapter 4. Here is one of the great reasons why Paul is concerned for the health of the church, because he knows that God is concerned for our health. After all, we are his household, we are his children, and what good father doesn't want what's best for his children? To paraphrase the logic of Jesus, even if we sinful daddies want the best for our little ones, how much more does our father want us to have his best? Sometimes his best includes hardship that he knows we need. But he always knows what is best, and he always wants what is best, and he always gives what is best. And a very large piece, larger I think than some of us realize, a very large piece of the Father's plan to give his children his best is that he has gathered us together in a family. That he's given us the local church. 
And that's why Paul spends a whole letter helping Timothy to know how to lead it. Because it's made up of God's household, God's children. But then there's a second reason embedded here in verse 15 why Paul is so concerned for the health of the church. And that is because God, whose household we are, is, he says, the living God. I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Now, what is Paul trying to communicate by calling God by that title, the living God? Well, of course, it means, obviously, that God is alive. God is not like the idols that many of these Ephesians once worshipped. They're under the shadow of the great temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And that may be primarily what Paul has in mind here, simply to contrast the God of the Ephesian church from the God of their neighbors. Here is a God who can see and hear and answer prayer, unlike the little statues of Artemis that the silversmiths hawked in the streets of Ephesus. But there's something else about this phrase, the living God, which I think needs our attention. And that is to note that sometimes these words, the living God, are used on the pages of the Bible as a way of indicating that God is not to be trifled with. For instance, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? Or, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You can hear it perhaps how both David and the author of Hebrews use this phrase to assert the seriousness of our God, the fact that He is awesome and majestic and not to be trifled with. You may have picked up on this before, so that the phrase, the living God, naturally sounds that way to you when someone uses it, and many times it's supposed to. Now let me give you an illustration. It's not exactly the same, and I don't intend to use this illustration irreverently at all, but sometimes the biblical writers append the word living to God's name in a similar fashion to the way your mother used to use your middle and last name when you were in real trouble. So she calls her son Willie, that's one thing. William is another. And William Anthony Jenkins lets you know she's really serious. And that's a bit of what the biblical authors are sometimes doing when they add the word living to God's name. Not like your mother to emphasize that they're saying something serious to God, of course, but to emphasize, in this case, the seriousness of God himself in what they're communicating to other people. So to call him God is one thing. That name should evoke all the reverence that is in us. But in case it doesn't, Sometimes the biblical writers turn up the dial another notch and say things like, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And perhaps that's what Paul is doing here. Not to scold us, but simply to show us how serious it is that the church belongs to the living God. I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And so here's another reason why Paul is so concerned about the purity of the church. Not just because the church is made up of God's children. Yes, that's true. But also because their father is the living God. And he is not to be toyed with. 
He is holy, holy, holy. He is a consuming fire. He is the God whose eyes are too pure to approve evil. The God who by no means will leave the guilty unpunished. Yes, He's a loving, good, merciful, benevolent, heavenly Father. But that's all the more reason not to trifle with His children. All the more reason for their leaders not to mistreat them. All the more reason for false teaching to be kept far from them. All the more reason for the needy to be cared for among them. Because if we think that it is safe to toy with God's church, to abuse her, to misuse her, to tarnish her reputation by our poor testimony, we had better remember that a father is jealous for the welfare of his children and moreover that the father of this bride is the living God. So here is why Paul loves the church and wants what's best for her. Because she is the bride of Christ, bought with his own blood. Because she is the daughter of the heavenly father. And because her father just happens to be the living God. And then let me show you one more reason here in verse 15 why Paul is passionate. That Timothy know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. And that is because, as he says at the end of the verse, the church is, quote, the pillar and support of the truth. The pillar and support of the truth. So now you think about that classical Greek architecture with which Paul and his readers would have been so familiar Here's a large roofed structure spanning a great distance and held up in the architecture of old by these massive pillars. You've seen them perhaps in pictures. Some of you perhaps have been to sites from the ancient world and seen them up close. And the church, Paul says, is like one of those pillars holding up, not the temple of Artemis, not any other building. The church is a pillar holding up the truth. The church, he says, is the pillar and support of the truth. Now, notice what Paul is not saying here. He's not saying the church is the truth. No. Jesus has it right when he says to his Father, Your word is truth. And Jesus also has it right when he says of himself, I am the truth. So the church is not the truth. The church is simply a pillar that holds the truth forth. Nor is Paul saying that the church is the arbiter of the truth, which is an error, it seems to me, that has been made by the Roman Catholic religion. The idea that the church is the one who decides how the truth should be interpreted for people. That's not what Paul says here either, is it? The church isn't to determine what truth is. The church simply holds up what God has declared to be true. Nor is the church the source or depository of truth. As though if you want to know what the truth is, you must only and always get the ruling of the church. That's not what Paul says either. The truth is something that shapes the church, but that is distinct from the church. Set forth in the Bible and in the person of Christ who is truth personified. These are the sources to which we turn to discover the truth. And so the church isn't the spring or the reservoir from which the truth is drawn. The church is simply the pillar on which the truth is placed for all to see. The church is outside of us. It is separate from the pillar. It sits on top of the pillar. It's not part of it. The church is God's instrument in the world for making the truth known, holding it up on the top 
of a pillar. She doesn't arbitrate what's true. She's not the source of the truth. She doesn't own the truth. God does. And she's certainly not the truth herself. But she does have a vital role. Like a pillar in a building in upholding the truth so that all the world may see it. In the wintertime, just that way, when the leaves are off the trees, if you position yourself just right, you can see from right here on the church property the tiara atop the Great American Tower downtown. Now, a large reason for that is, of course, the high vantage point from which we were able to look from atop this pleasant ridge, as it's called. And yet, our high vantage point here doesn't enable us to see every building downtown, does it? No, the reason we can see the tiara is because of the structure that holds it up. And that's what the church is like. We are not the tiara. We are not the truth. We are not the first thing that everyone needs to see. But we are the structure that holds up what everyone needs to see. And the taller the structure the more clearly it can be seen. Now, that's not to say that were it not for the church, the truth would come crashing down and be no more. The truth will always be the truth whether we choose to uphold it properly or not. Just like the tiara downtown would be just as beautiful if it were positioned on the ground along the river's edge at Sawyer Point. But the point is, not not nearly as many people would see it there, would they? And that's the thing about the church and the truth. We are to be a pillar in our city that upholds the truth so it can be clearly seen. And not nearly as many people will see it if we do not hold it high. And that, I say to you, is one reason why that Paul, the apostle, is so concerned that the church be healthy. Because he knows that flimsy doctrine will create a flimsy pillar that will not be able to support the truth and will thus shroud it from people's view. And because he knows that crooked character among the church's leaders will result in a crooked pillar, which will not be able to hold the truth for very long before it slides off sideways and falls into obscurity. And because he knows that weak spirituality among the members will make for a weak pillar that may uphold the truth, but not very high, not like the great American tower. And so I tell you that Paul is concerned about the church because he's concerned about the truth, about its being visible in Ephesus and in every other city on this planet. I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And what is the truth that we are to hold forth to the world? Well, the truth may be found in every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And thus, in every word that we find written in the pages of the Bible. Your word is truth, Jesus said in John seventeen seventeen. But then Jesus also taught us that God's word, all throughout, testifies of him. In other words, the solar system of God's truth all revolves around the sun, S-O-N. And not only does all biblical truth all throughout testify and revolve around Jesus, but Jesus also claimed that he himself is the truth. 
And so what is the truth that we, like a pillar, are to hold up for the world? Well, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, every word that we find in each of the 66 books of the Bible, and then we are also to be astute enough to realize how those words and how those books testify especially of Jesus. And we are to set Him forth as truth personified. Here's our message to the neighborhood of Pleasant Ridge, to the city of Cincinnati, and to the ends of the earth. Here is what we place up on top of the pillar for all to see. The truth of every last word of the Holy Scriptures and from those Scriptures, the truth, as Paul says it in his letter to the church at Ephesus, which is in Jesus. And we can only do it if we are a straight, strong, steady pillar. I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And then in verse 16, Paul gives us a little sample of the truth that he's talking about. The truth that we've just been discussing, which comes from the Bible and has its orbit around the person of Jesus. Because in the last verse of this chapter, Paul gives us what he calls a common confession. A confession, in other words, that was evidently known and used by several of the early churches. It was common among them. And the lyrical nature of the words that follow in that confession lead scholars to believe that the confession Paul records here may have been set to a tune and recited in the early churches as a song. He who is revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. I'd love to know the tune to which they sang it. But as with the pillar that upholds the truth, it's not the tune that's most important here, but the truth that it trumpets. And so what is the truth that Paul rehearses here and that the early Christians sang? Well, there are six lines to this hymn, and note that they all revolve around Jesus, which again is instructive. He is the sun at the center of the solar system of Christian truth. And so we speak of him and we sing of him foremost of all and at the center of all. And what did the early Christians sing of him? What were some of the truths that the early Christians like pillars held up when they sang? Well, like Paul's letter is not an exhaustive treatment of church life, so also this little hymn is not an exhaustive treatment of the truth about Jesus. There's more to be said about Jesus than what this hymn says. But while it may not be exhaustive, this hymn certainly is exquisite. And it's true and it's instructive. So let's just look at the six lines together and be moved to sing Christ's name and to uphold his truth like our forefathers did nearly 2,000 years ago. So first of all, the early church sang about how Jesus was revealed in the flesh. Revealed in the flesh. They sang about how, as John puts it, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, no one had yet to th- thought to create a holiday called Christmas. But here are ancient brethren singing the same truths that we love to sing in December every year. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Revealed in the flesh. 
child in the manger, infant of Mary, outcast and stranger, Lord of all, revealed in the flesh. It's one of the most amazing truths in all the Bible that the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, the holy, holy, holy one, the living God was revealed in the flesh, fully God and yet now also fully man. And you know he was revealed in the flesh not only when he was born in Bethlehem, but as he grew up serving the Lord and as he ministered for those years, walking among the people and revealing God to them in the flesh, and as he hung on the cross where his flesh was rent for our sins. Here is God revealed in the flesh, in the manger and in his ministry and at Calvary as well. And that is a truth worth setting on top of a pillar. That is a truth worth singing about 12 months out of the year. And then not only did they sing about the incarnation, but they sang about the resurrection, which is what Paul is referring to when he says that Jesus was vindicated in the Spirit, or as a few translations put it, vindicated by the Spirit. The Greek word can be translated either way, in or by, as the NASB footnote reveals, if you have it, in or by, but the latter, it seems, is preferable, it seems to me, because the phrase, in the Spirit, even though the NASB capitalizes the S, may sound like it's saying that Jesus' vindication, his resurrection, happened in the realm of his soul, his spirit and may not say anything about his body. But that's not what the hymn means, of course. Because when Jesus was vindicated, when he was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, it wasn't simply his spirit that rose from the dead, but his body as well. He rose bodily, not just spiritually. And so it conveys the meaning of the text better, I think, if we translate this phrase, he was vindicated by the Spirit. Because it shows, that translation shows that what is meant is that the Holy Spirit had a hand in Christ's bodily resurrection. And doesn't make us confused that perhaps Christ was only resurrected spiritually. But with those little bits of language and theology under our belts, the main thing is to realize that the early church was singing about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, just like we do. Christ the Lord is risen today. Hallelujah. Up from the grave he arose. They were singing these same truths. And here is one of the great truths that we must set up on a pedestal and make available to the culture around us. Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. His death paid for our sins and His resurrection proved that He was the Son of God who alone was capable of paying for those sins. He was vindicated. He was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. And that is a truth worth singing about. A truth worth placing like a tiara at the highest point possible. And then thirdly, the hymn says that Christ was seen by angels. Seen by angels. Now what does that mean? What is that in reference to? It may seem anticlimactic after the first two lines of the hymn deal with the great doctrines of the incarnation and the resurrection. It may seem anticlimactic now just to point out that Jesus was seen by angels. You may say to yourself, well, of course he was seen by angels. The angels seem to see most of what's going on in the world. But there may be 
something more significant about this particular sighting of the angels here. And commentators pose a number of different possibilities for what may be in view. But let me just give you one suggestion, posited though not necessarily adopted by the Methodist commentator Adam Clark. I think what he posits here fits quite well into the logical and chronological flow of the greater part of this hymn. And that is that Clark reminds us that the word angels, while we usually think of it in terms of these spiritual beings who serve God, the word angels can also sometimes simply mean, in the Greek, messengers. So, for instance, that's probably the way the word angels is intended to be understood in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, where Jesus sends letters to the angels of the seven churches in Asia Minor. In that case, the angels are probably not spiritual angels like we think about them, worshiping around God's throne and inhabiting the unseen world who are now to deliver these letters from Jesus to the churches. Probably the word there is used to refer to human messengers, maybe the pastors of those local church, who would receive these letters from Jesus and pass along his words to the whole congregation. Angels can sometimes simply refer to human messengers. And Clark poses the possibility that the word angels might perhaps be understood in the same way here. That what this hymn is saying is that when Jesus was seen, it was by certain human messengers, eyewitnesses, the apostles, who would then, according to the next line of the hymn, proclaim the name of Jesus among the nations. And so while it's possible that this phrase speaks of Jesus being seen by the creatures we normally think of when we hear the word angels, I think it may actually be referring to the apostles, the eyewitnesses of his ministry and of his resurrection, who would then proclaim what they saw among the nations. Because it fits the chronology of the better part of the hymn. Jesus was revealed in the flesh, in his incarnation, in his birth, in his fully human life, in Uh, his ministry on the cross and so on. He was revealed in the flesh. And then, next, he was vindicated in or by the Spirit. He was proven to be who he said he was by means of his resurrection. And both before that resurrection and crucially after that resurrection, he was, next, seen by angels, by messengers, who could later write words like, we saw his glory. And what did those eyewitnesses do next? Well, in the words of the next line of the hymn, they proclaimed him among the nations. He was proclaimed among the nations. Now remember, the Christians were singing that, and Paul was writing that in the first century. 1900 plus years ago, and within just a few decades of Jesus' ascension. And they could say... Already, he was proclaimed among the nations. Now, that doesn't mean that he was already proclaimed among every nation, and certainly not among every tribe, tongue, or people group. We're still working on that today. But the apostles and their early Christian brothers got the gospel remarkably far afield, didn't they? That's what this hymn is telling us. He, by the time this hymn is written, has already been proclaimed not just in Jerusalem, not just in Judea, not just in Samaria, but his name is already getting out, as Acts 1.8 says, to the uttermost parts of the earth. 
They did remarkably well. They built the pillar remarkably tall, to go back to Paul's analogy, so that in the first century, with no airplanes and no internet and no printing presses to copy the Bible, the gospel was made known according to Christian tradition in a swath that stretched from Britain all the way down to India. And even if we just go with what we know for certain from the Bible, we at least know that the apostle who wrote this letter took the gospel as far as Rome, even to speak it to Caesar, and he had designs on visiting Spain as well. And so I say to you, the early church did its job of being the pillar in support of the truth. They held up the truth for the nations to see, and through us... And our proclamation of what these same apostles saw and wrote down, Jesus is still being proclaimed among the nations to this day. The apostles probably had no clue of the existence of these lands far to the west where we sit this morning. But because they gave us the New Testament, here we are gathered listening to their message today. The same message that Paul preached in what is now Turkey and that Thomas carried to southern India proclaimed among the nations. And in all these places where the gospel has gone and where the gospel goes, as the hymn says next, Jesus is believed on in the world. Believed on in the world. And again, the verb tense of this hymn written in the first century tells us that at the time of its composure, Jesus was already believed on in the world. Meaning that even in the first century, as we know from the book of Acts, Jesus was already being received as Savior and King in places very far flung from the Galilean and Judean hillsides and hamlets where He spent most of His life. Just take this city of Ephesus, for instance. It was quite a journey away from where Paul had grown up and where Jesus had ministered. I already told you that it was home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple of the false goddess Artemis, or Diana, if you're more familiar with the Roman pantheon. And here, just a few decades after the ascension of Jesus, is a little outpost of Christ's kingdom, a little church in Ephesus, beautifully sprouting up like a bed of lilies right in the shadow of this world-famous temple. And according to the letter that Paul wrote directly to this church, the congregation wasn't made up entirely of ethnic Jews either. There were plenty of Gentiles mixed in too. People who'd come directly out of the darkness of paganism and into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. People who'd come straight over perhaps from Artemis to Jesus. And we're worshiping him now in the shadow of her stronghold. And this is what happens when the church and her emissaries take seriously their role as the pillar and support of the truth. Jesus is believed on in the world. And it will happen today if we and the churches around us in this world will be the strong, straight, steady pillars that this letter calls us to be. Jesus will be believed on by the cultural elite in our city and by those who live in the most downtrodden neighborhoods. And He will be believed on too in the slums of India and in the apartment blocks of China and in the far-flung hamlets of Greenland and in the high-rises of Dubai and among every tribe and tongue and people and nation in between. 
In the first century, Jesus was believed on in the world, and he will continue to be as the church commits to be all that she should be. And then finally, the hymn tells us that this same Jesus was taken up in glory. Taken up in glory, which is a reference to his ascension. Now here is where the song leaves behind its chronological order, because of course the ascension of Christ happened before the apostles began proclaiming him among the nations. But be that as it may, here is a wonderful conclusion to this song. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Here is further proof that Jesus is who he said he was. The fact that he ascended into heaven bodily. And though it's not mentioned in this hymn, we know from Acts chapter 1 that he will return in just the same way as the disciples watched him go. But when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find us singing these same truths? Still acting as a pillar to uphold them before a perishing world? That's the burden of this letter. That the church should be all that she can be so that the truths of this hymn, the truths of the gospel, the truth which is in Jesus not be left lying in the dust seen by only a few, but that it might be lifted up by a church that is strong and straight and steady like a pillar and that Jesus might therefore continue to be proclaimed among the nations and continue to be believed on in the world. I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth.